considering your options were man-eaters, bad blood, and fallen women, I mean, gosh, this morning is a little bit gruesome, honestly. I'm like, we're starting off in a kind of kooky, kooky spot, but I'm glad you guys picked this session. I think it's going to be pretty fun. So, um, as Jen mentioned, um, my research interests are around drugs, which sounds dark and terrible, um, but I have long worked in the justice kind of world in many ways. So I worked for the federal government for a long time um, on crime prevention programs and on some international um, rule of law and human rights projects, all kind of in the drug realm. And in more recent years, I've worked locally on some drug prevention programming across Montana. So I've sort of seen drugs from local to national to international. Um, and I just think they're really fascinating in how um, we manage them, what policy looks like, um, how they affect us on a personal level. Um, so that's where my research interests lie. Um, for the sake of today's topic, since we don't have all day to talk about all of those things, um, I wanted to look at women and substance use in Montana and how that has changed over time. So some of my story today, I'll try to get as Montana focused as I can. Some of it is more um, on national narrative and what's kind of what drug use has looked like for women over the last, my title said 100 years, but I had to go back a little bit farther. Um, so I'll try to get, a lot of it is in the first part of the 20th century, but that's sort of what I'm, what I'm looking at for today. So in this presentation, we're going to talk about women, um, their role as users of drugs, both legal and illegal, um, how they've been targeted as consumers of both legal and illegal drugs, because that has changed over time, how female addicts changed, and then women's role in advocacy in prevention and in the drug policy world. Um, I'm going to look at intersection, and what I mean by intersection is where public institutions find themselves interacting with each other because of drug policy. So I'm really interested in how the justice sector, so courts, rule of law, law enforcement, interacts with the public health world, um, doctors, nurses, clinics, social workers, all of that. Um, I, I just think that is, that's a fascinating mix and how that's changed over time. Uh, I want to look at where public policy plays into these intersections as well. And so the last thing I'll look at for today and talk about is exceptionalism. So my theory, based on my work and my research, is that there's something exceptional about the Rocky Mountain West region. And it's not just because I love living here and I think it's an exceptional place. I also think the story in Montana and the Rocky Mountain region is a little bit different when we're talking about drugs. So I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to prove that theory to you today, but my goal is to look at Montana and see if the elements that are happening here are different than trends other places. Um, so we'll see, today is just like a tipping point. That's the hope of my long-term research is to try to you know, really look at that argument. Um, but today we're at least gonna narrow in on women in Montana uh, as just a starting point. So before I dive into all that, I thought it might be nice to just consider a timeline of major drug laws and policies in the United States. Um, these are not comprehensive by any means. This is just sort of a snapshot of some of the major laws. Um, state laws are obviously different than this, and regulation by state is different than this. But it just gives you a sense of regulation over time. 
So um, in some states, laws began, um, laws to ban or regulate drugs were passed in the 1800s. Uh, but the first congressional act to levy taxes uh, was in 1890 on morphine and opium. So after that, the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act in 1909 banned the possession, importation, and use of opium for smoking. But opium could still be used as a medication. Uh, this was the first federal law to ban the non-medical use of a substance. So a lot of this narrative we see drugs going from pharmaceutical, commonly used, easily accessible, to becoming what public labeled or uh, government labels as a problem needing regulation. Um, so then we go into the Harrison Act, uh, was, which was a United States federal law that regulated and taxed the production, importation, and distribution of opiates and coca products. And then alcohol prohibition laws quickly followed this. So we're all familiar with prohibition, the 1990 18th Amendment, uh, or 1919 rather, um, which ratified ban manufacture, transportation, or sale of intoxicating liquors. And so this ushered in prohibition. Uh, the Marijuana Tax Act put a tax on the sale of cannabis. It, this was later overturned by the Supreme Court. And then the Controlled Substances Act uh, is the statute establishing federal U.S. drug policy under which the manufacture, importation, possession, use, and distribution of certain substances is regulated. This all sounds so boring, wah, wah, laws about drug policy, but I just want to put it up there to remind you that these things have shifted over time, and these are some of the big ones, um, just to think about what was happening in these time periods and why, why these laws were passed. So I could give a whole talk on why this stuff happened at these time frames, but I just wanted to throw this up there to give you a sense of what was happening when. So let's talk about women, because that's what our session's about. It's about the ladies. So I'm looking at women um, as customers to start with, okay? Females have long been targeted by pharmaceutical companies, um, and there's all these disparities in the way prescription drug use has been around and like targeted towards men versus women over time. I think the ads around this are particularly fascinating. So I have a couple ads that I'm gonna share with you up here. Um, but to kind of jump way back to this time period, um, morphine and drugs like laudanum were really targeted towards women for distinctly female conditions, is as they were labeled. So things like pregnancy, childbirth, menstrual, birth, menstrual pain. Um, but they also had the added benefit of not being alcohol, which was in the 19th century something not smiled upon for, for women to use, and a lot of women crusaded against the use of it. Um, really wasn't accepted, widely accepted socially for women to use alcohol. So drug addiction grew at this time for things like laudanum compounds, um, medications for these issues of female troubles, nervousness, um, depression, things like that. So this is an ad for using laudanum for your sleepless baby. And then um, this ad I found in the Columbia Falls, Montana paper for Castoria drops instead of using laudanum. This was 1907. So it says, don't poison baby, because women are often using laudanum to help those fussy, sleepless nights with the newborn. Um, so women continue to be targeted as, as customers over the 20th century. So these are some ads from the 1940s and 50s for things like anxiety and weight loss. Um, again, you know, the, the image of the overworked housewife can't handle it all. Uh, and then staying fit and slim by taking amphetamine. I found, ironically, another ad. I, I ran out of space, but uh, 
earlier on of a, uh, a woman who was too thin and the, the, the man was saying, oh, she's just not plump enough for me. And it was an ad for how to gain weight and be that curvier later, lady. So, you know, it just changes over time of what, what looks right and what people want. And if you think this has gone out of fashion, this is an ad from today um, for an ADHD medicine for patients 13 and older, but it is kind of geared towards women. I actually talked to somebody in the medical profession about this, um, and I just found it interesting that it's still the image of the woman doing it all. So she's, you know, cooking and on the phone and doing her work and getting this stuff for the kids. So this, this idea of being targeted is still, in my mind, still very much happening. Okay, so let's talk about how this shifts into addiction. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so let's go back to the beginning of the 20th century here and think about, um, think about how this results in addiction. By the end of the 1800s, more than two-thirds of the country's opium and morphine addicts are women. So that to me was kind of a staggering statistic. Two-thirds of the population um, are addicted. The interesting thing about that, in my mind, is that, um, is that it's kind of under the radar, right? People are getting these drugs through pharmacists, through their doctors. It's sort of a slow um, addiction that's under the radar a little bit, similar to where we are today um, with opioids. So the following is an example from Ellen Baumler's great piece um, on the Deer Lodge Prison and Women Offenders. Um, this woman here is Frances Steele. Um, so women in Montana prisons sometimes had drug addiction that led to crimes, but until 1923, drug use itself was not a crime. Uh, state law in Montana changed at that time, and many women went to Deer Lodge for selling or possessing narcotics. And there were not really rehabilitation programs at this time, um, and people often were repeat offenders for, for being users. So this woman here is a Butte housewife. In 1925, she went to Deer Lodge, served a two-year sentence for possessing morphine, um, was paroled, got, went through the cycle of getting uh, reoffending and going back in. But she first appears in some local newspaper articles that I looked up uh, in a 1920 article when she was just 18. Um, there's a Butte article talking about the arrival of a new narcotics inspector who um, was working to eliminate a ring of dope peddlers in Butte's Chinatown. And they interviewed Frances Steele Wood before she was married, uh, told the police that, she told the police that Chinese men and white men um, are in the league to violate the Harrison narcotic law and are daily making young girls drug addicts. Okay, so that's her first appearance in the newspaper. Um, in a 1920, let me find it, 22, um, it's about her selling drugs. Uh, they describe her as a rapidly length, she has a rapidly lengthening jail history. She's a Butte girl, a graduate of the local high school, happily married while still in her teens. I like that they interpret that she was happily married. Um, yeah. Right? They know, apparently they knew that. Uh, the child of respectable parents, she has sunk to the levels of hovel-dwelling drug addicts. Um, and she goes on to talk about how she kind of got pulled into it um, through a crummy landlady and all of this stuff. Okay, so that's just an example of addiction within Montana. I started thinking about how the public was responding to this, particularly how women were responding, right? So we know there's a lot of addicts that are women, but there's clearly a lot of women in the community who are not. 
And so I started to look at activists. Um, so one way I, I found that was through the lens of women's clubs, which are um, particularly active in Montana and have been for a long time. They're still very active. I'm part of one, actually. Got roped into it. Um, but it's, they're interesting groups, right? And it's a community-engaged group. So, um, so just 10 years after Francis's story unfolds, the 1937 women's magazine, or Montana Women Magazine, which was the women's club magazine, they released their official newsletter, and Mrs. J.H. Morrow here, who was the director at the time, writes, as you remember, at our biennial convention in Billings, we endorsed the resolution concerning the narcotic problem in Montana. And she had just gone to Washington. She met the commissioner of narcotics, and she found some facts out about Montana, that Montana has 25 places where the records show an unusual amount of narcotics sold, and has 299 addicts listed, which she says in proportion to this population is pretty bad. She compares it to Montana, or sorry, Minnesota, which has a much larger population, and they only have 216 addicts. So to them, they're, um, this is very upsetting. So they're talking, she goes on to talk about the state legislature passing some um, policy related to this. And she says, what are you going to do about it? Keep your eyes open and report what you find. Federal aid will be given to any prosecutions, but the case must be brought to Montana first. It's up to the mothers to be on the alert and doing something about it. Um, so this is just an example of sort of activism within the community. And I came across a few other articles on women's clubs throughout the state from the 1930s through the 50s where narcotics prevention was noted or they had speakers coming in to present on drug abuse issues. What I really wanted to do was dig into their archives and find the notes on them, but I didn't have enough time. So um, maybe that's for later research at some point. So I started thinking about the intersections of treatment and incarceration and what that looks like here compared to on a national level. Um, so I'm really interested in this justice sector, public health sphere overlapping. So the research I found on where medical institutions were used for treatment was somewhat limited in what I could look at because of HIPAA laws. Um, but I did find some interesting stories and legislation regarding addicts being sent um, to Warm Springs, the state um, hospital, um, for treatment. So the first case I saw that in, in what I, the limited research that I looked at uh, was in 1908 where a number of male drug users in Butte were sent to Warm Springs for treatment, including a dentist who had become addicted um, to his own supply of morphine. And this is common throughout this time period up to today where we see a lot of addiction coming within the medical community because of access. Um, in 1921, the revised codes in Montana discussed a department at the Insane Asylum at Warm Springs for inebriates to be used, um, or sorry, to be used for the detention, care, and treatment of all persons suffering from affliction caused by the use of drugs or intoxicants. So we know then in the 20s, Warm Springs is opening up uh, part of their facility um, for drug addicts and alcohol, um, people with alcohol addiction. So this is a picture from Warm Springs. Again, limited, uh, I could find limited imagery for you guys to feast your eyes on because you can't, I can't look, we can't pull patient photos, but we can look at just images of the space. So um, this looks like very, I always think that this looks like ghosts in the background because of this photo. Um, and then in a 1930 letter to the State Board of Commissioners for the Insane, some of the stats I came across I thought were interesting for Warm Springs. So they had 1,700 patients in 1930. 
Um, they were at their peak in the 50s with almost 2,000 patients. This was a huge facility co compared to what it is today. Um, but in 1930, of the 1,700 patients, there was a small number who were discharged without psychosis, so they weren't there for mental health issues. Um, they were there for addiction issues. And of the ones that were released, 25 were, were men, 22 were women um, as drug addicts. 28 men were released as inebriates, five women. Um, so it just gives you a sense from a statistical place of how many people are there for addiction within Montana. So we know treatment for substance users was happening. How effective it was is hard for me to say with the information I was able to look at. So just a sense of how big Warm Springs was at that time period. This is a not great image, but an aerial shot of Warm Springs. And just how massive it was, I just thought was kind of interesting to put in perspective. Um, in terms of how incarceration played out uh, for women drug users in Montana, again, I looked at Ellen Baumler's great piece um, on Montana prisons, and it provides a lot of detail of how drug arrests changed over time for women in the early, early 20th century. So from 1911 to 1943, the small women's facility at the Montana State Prison housed 126 women. Um, statistics show that crimes uh, began to change for women at this time. Possession and selling of drugs was 23% and became all of a sudden a significant uh, category of crime. So this statistic can be partially explained by the changes in the laws at the time. We looked at those national laws, but state law changed at that time. Um, and then, of course, the sale of opium and coca becomes illegal around this time as well. Um, okay. So that's Deer Lodge, picture of Deer Lodge for incarceration. And then some other just treatment and prevention things I came across that I thought were kind of interesting were some of these pamphlets from the 50s. Um, from the Narcotics and Alcoholism Advisory Committee at the state level. And most of these materials focused on men. Um, these were for education programs, um, public consumption. They focus on men and they focus on alcohol. So we don't really see a big prevention outreach um, about women and use at this time. So back to my theory of the Rocky Mountain West um, and its exceptionalism. Um, I don't really think I've been able to dig down far enough into the, what I've looked at uh, for this presentation, whether we really stand out. Uh, but on the national level, the perspective on what to do about drug addicts was shifting at this time period too. So just to put in perspective of what we've just, just kind of been reviewing on um, the use of Warm Springs, uh, incarceration of women, all of these things, and thinking about it from a, what's happening nationally. Um, in this same early 20th century time period, you see a shift because prisons are becoming overcrowded um, in many states, and then there's a lack of treatment services. Really, the only people getting treatment services in the early 20th century uh, are the upper classes of society who can afford to go to private hospitals. Um, so in 1929, the Porter Act was passed that mandated the formation of two narcotics farms to be run by the U.S. Public Health Service. So these were these two massive facilities. One was in Kentucky and one was in Texas. Um, and they were basically uh, a mixture of incarceration and treatment for people with any sort of addiction problem. Um, and they formed, again, because of this sort of public national outcry of what do we do about addiction and what do we do with these people 
um, who need help. And so um, some fascinating things from the, the intention of those was this idea they were farms because there was this idea of rehabilitation um, and working beyond getting treatment, sort of rehabbing and coming back into society. So they actually did have functioning farms at these places where patients could go out and work, work with, um, in the fields and with animals and whatnot. Um, they are their own thing. That could be their own presentation, but I'm just trying to help paint a picture of what is happening nationally. Um, so Montana's, Montana's use of Warm Springs is not that distinct, right? Because we're seeing it happening on a national level too. Um, what I did try to dig through was some arrest records, and uh, I did so in Gallatin County and then in um, Silverbow and Butte, again in the early 20th century. Um, Butte has its own stories, right? Because Butte is this thriving urban center where you're going to find, I found a lot more arrests, um, a lot of moonshining, a lot of dope heads, all of these things. Um, I did see some of that in Gallatin County, but there were a few women in, in Butte and none in, in Gallatin County from 1910 to 1935. Not one woman listed in that in these indexes of arrest records, at least for narcotics. Um, lots for other things, which you'll probably hear about in the next presentation, um, but none for addiction. So um, I found it fascinating on a side note that there are plenty of fishing and hunting arrests not, without a license arrests in that time period. And they stayed for a long period of time in jail. I mean, it was like, five, unless you could pay out the, the fee, it was a long time, and I was like, wow, that's its own, someone else, someone else needs to do that. That research on uh, how that played out, what that says about, um, what that says about environmental stuff. So, anyway, uh, the story on, in Montana on drug policy, uh, I'm curious if it's typical of other rural states, for example. So is my, does my theory stick if I just look at other states, particularly in the western region, um, that has that have a large rural um, rural spaces and rural populations. Because does it have to do with access to treatment? Does it have to do um, with how much funding we have, for example, and that are going to these different things? So obviously, more research is needed to keep going on this theory. So just bringing us to the present, um, I thought I would throw this up here. Um, this, uh, you probably can't read this very well, but this is pulled from the Washington Post. They have a very interesting interactive database where you can plug in your county. So I plugged in Lewis and Clark because that's where we are. Um, and this is specifically on the opioid crisis. So it provides some information on how many prescri prescription pain pills um, from 2006 to 2012 are in this area, um, where they're getting distributed from, which pharmacies, all of this data. So. When you do this for this county, you see that um, plenty of pain pills were going out, 36 pills per person per year um, when you average that out, which seems crazy high, right? Which, uh, but if you compare this to other counties in Montana, there are counties with, with, with much higher. And then if you look at this nationally, it's, it, Montana doesn't even really blip on the radar compared to places. I think Charleston, South Carolina actually had the highest um, but you hear about it in the newspaper today, you hear Ohio, you hear uh, New Hampshire, all these other places. What I think is kind of misleading about where um, the media is pushing us today 
is that this makes us feel like this is at a crisis point here for us in Montana. And I'm not saying that it's not, um, but similarly, as I'm looking back to this data from 100 years ago, the main problem is not opiates today, it's actually alcohol and nicotine. If you look at our public health data, that's where the, the most use is and that's where the most concern is. So that pamphlet from the 1950s, if we want to go back and think about this, the problem drinker in Montana history and how alcoholism is really the, the key focus, that still is our main focus today or should be. The media will lead you to think that it's, that it's opiates. So I'm not trying to negate that no opiates are a problem. They certainly are. But um, Montana is unique in that we don't fit into that national story right now to the same degree of other places. We're dealing with meth, and we're dealing with alcohol problems, and we're dealing with um, high use of cigarettes and e-cigarettes and vaping, particularly with youth. Um, so I don't want to leave on a downer of a note, but, um, <laughs> but that's just sort of where we are today. Um, so keep it all in perspective. I still think Montana stands out in a unique way, and I'll keep looking into it. So thank you guys so much for having me today, and I'll end there.